This is Brother Michael A. Smith, a voice for Freemasonry, bringing to you the Short Talk Bulletin, published monthly by the Masonic Service Association of North America since 1923. This is Brother Rich Gravelin from United Lodge 8, Brunswick, Maine, bringing to you Volume 46, Number 1, January 1968. The Origin of the Ritual Written by illustrious Right Worshipful Brother Lewis L. Williams of the Grand Lodge of Illinois. Masonic scholars have been trying for 200 years to solve the craft's greatest mystery, the origin of its ritual. Our Masonic forefathers were told imaginative stories about the origin of the craft. We were established by King Solomon with the help of Hiram, king of Tyre. Masonry began with Noah and his sons, and one good Masonic brother, more ardent than the others, claimed Adam as our first grand master because he was the first man to wear an apron. This kind of Masonic history prevailed until 1850 when a reaction set in. Later historians, particularly those of the first quarter of the 20th century, debunked the tall tales and accepted only those facts of Masonry which had incontrovertible written proof. Both groups were wrong. History must have facts behind it, but all the historical interpretations assume certain precedents which go back beyond the known facts. Ancient and medieval history consists of such reasonable assumptions. Operative masonry existed in ancient times, but that our modern fraternity began with King Solomon or with anyone prior to the cathedral builders of the medieval period is pure legend. Out of the old craft guilds, out of the loose confraternity of men who worked on the great churches and castles of the period between 1200 and 1500 AD, came operative masonry with organized lodges and ceremonies. By process of gradual change, it became speculative masonry, first organized into a grand lodge of masons in London on June 24th, 1717. The so-called Gothic constitutions of old charges are the earliest proof of our modern masonry. They consist of about 100 old manuscripts found in various places and now carefully preserved. The oldest and the most prized is the Regius Manuscript, so-called because King George II presented it to the British Museum in 1757. It is in verse, composed about 1390 A.D. It is the oldest preserved Masonic writing. The second important document is the Cook Manuscript, assigned a date between 1400 to 1410 A.D. Both were written for Masons and contain unusual material. Both show evidence of being copies of even earlier manuscripts. The Cook Manuscript begins with an invocation to deity, a practice followed in every English-speaking Masonic body to this day. Both manuscripts end with our familiar ritualistic quotation, Amen, so mote it be. 
The manuscripts generally consist of two parts, a history of the craft, mostly legendary, and the regulations or the charges. The historical section, highly imaginative and largely untrue, was not only copied by Dr. James Anderson in his famous Book of Constitutions, but also embroidered with stories of his own fancy. Even William Preston, in The Illustrations of Masonry, followed Anderson's account. It was a century or more before the legends were brought into serious question and shown to contain little, if any, historical basis in fact. The ancient charges are another matter. From them comes some of our present-day ritual. The early initiate was directed to take his oath while his hand was under the holy book or upon the boak. He was charged to keep the counsel of his fellows truly, not to commit adultery with a fellow's wife, daughter, or servant, not to supplant a master or fellow in any of their work, to take no prentice but one freeborn, come of good kindred and whole of limb, to slander no mason behind his back, to come to assembly if it is within 50 miles if he have warning. These charges and the history of the craft, or portions thereof, were required to be read at each assembly of masons, together with a lecture on some appropriate Masonic subject. This requirement carried over into the lodges of the newly organized Grand Lodge after 1717, and much of our ritual today came from the manner in which these requirements were observed. Many today consider our ritual virtually unchangeable, but this was not so in 1717 and the years before and after. The charges were read or repeated from memory. They were not secret. But the signs and words, used originally to identify the operative and later the speculative mason, were strictly secret and unwritten. The original ceremonies were brief and simple. They consisted of the administering of an oath of secrecy, the communication of the secrets, and the giving of the charges. Each lodge was a separate unit with no standard to go by. The ritual, therefore, became a matter of the mason's preference as to what words to use to convey the ideas involved. It was several decades after the Grand Lodge was formed before any standardization was accomplished or even sought after. Thus, we find the ritual evolving through a system of trial and error. A gifted master or Masonic lecturer would frame a passage of appealing beauty. Soon, others would use it and gradually it found acceptance in many lodges. This was a slow evolution. In the first several decades of the newly organized Grand Lodge, no uniformity existed. Even today, there are eight rather widely variant rituals in use in England, all accepted as valid and regular. In the United States, we have as many versions as there are states, and some differ greatly from others. In the 17th century, operative masonry in Scotland developed a ritual on which the most important element was the mason word. Trade secrets were important to the craftsmen. They did not wish Cowans to have them. 
These secrets were communicated to the initiate upon the five points of fellowship listed in the Edinburgh Register House Manuscript 1696 as foot to foot, knee to knee, heart to heart, hand to hand, and ear to ear. The ceremony was part of a single degree only, most of which formed a part of our present fellow craft degree. We do not know the date of origin of the word called the Grand Masonic Word today. It antedated 1598, one authority even says 1475, since it was referred to in the Shaw Statutes of 1598. These were passed in response to a petition from Kilwinning Lodge to regulate the operative craft. The word itself went through various changes of spelling and meaning before it became the word we use today. While the Mason word, the Grand Masonic word, was originated simply to enable an operative Mason to prove himself and be admitted among strangers, there did arise a ceremony during which it might be revealed. An examination or catechism preceded the actual communication so that each Mason might know the other had been truly and duly invested with these secrets. One of the first questions required this answer. By signs, tokens, and other points of my entry. A later question of the old catechism coming from the Edinburgh Register House Manuscript brought the answer, the first point is to heal and conceal, second, under no less pain, which is then cutting of your throat. For you must make that sign when you say that. The catechism then proceeded through the five points of fellowship, ending with a primitive version of the penalty of our present first-degree obligation and the giving of the word. Early in Scottish operative masonry, there were two ceremonies, for they quickly divided entered apprentices from fellows of the craft, but there were no lectures as we know them today. A tradition did gradually grow up around the word. Our ancient brethren had both little education and much superstition. The idea of a word too sacred to be pronounced, except under very special circumstances. Dr. James Anderson, a Scotch Presbyterian minister, and Dr. John Theopolis de Soglier, an Episcopal clergyman, were two of the foremost Masons who guided and directed the development of the newly organized Grand Lodge of 1717. They probably changed the entire course of Masonic history by removing a Christian belief as a requirement for membership, changing it to a belief in God only, thus establishing universality as a fundamental landmark of the order. In 1723, Dr. Anderson published his Constitutions of Freemasonry. From that date, Masonry grew in power and favor. In writing his book, Anderson had access to some of the old manuscripts. Like the Eregius and Cook manuscripts, his Constitutions consists of a history and the ancient charges. He took the old histories, already fantastic beyond credibility, and embroidered them copiously. But Dr. Anderson took the ancient charges, rearranged, revised, and improved them, and they became the code of Masonic law that governs the craft even today. 
Between 1720 and 1730, speculative masonry was exported to the European continent. There, in the next 50 years, particularly in France, it proliferated into tens if not hundreds of degrees. Authorities agree that two degrees might have been worked in England and certainly were worked in Scotland before 1720. But we know from our indisputed fact that somewhere around 1723, two degrees were being worked by the 50 or so subordinate lodges under the Grand Lodge. There was as yet no official master's degree. The Grand Lodge rules provided that the Grand Officers need only be fellow crafts. But somewhere in this decade, a master's degree was instituted, originally conferred only on those called to preside, but later on all brethren. In the meantime, the original ceremony or degree, as developed in the Scottish lodges and adopted by the English, were divided into two degrees of entered apprentice and fellowcraft. The original ceremony was our second degree and contained the genesis of our lecture on geometry. This was then divided into a ceremony of admission and one of passing, and gradually assumed the status of the degrees we know today. The evolution of the master's degree resulted from the introduction and assimilation of the Hiramic legend into the master's degree. The origin of the story of Hiram, the widow's son, is as great a mystery as anything in masonry. We know the miracle plays, religious drama, and tales of folklore were a common inheritance from the Middle Ages. We know that the story of Hiram developed over a couple of centuries. It may have been referred to in a lodge ceremony for half a century before 1717, but it was definitely adopted into the ritual and probably gradually somewhere between 1723 and 1730. In 1723, Dr. Anderson makes no mention of it whatsoever in his Constitutions, but in 1738, when he published a revised edition, he refers to the sudden death of their dear master Hiram Abiff, whom they recently interred in the lodge near the temple, according to ancient usage. In 1730, Samuel Pritchard published the first expose of our ritual, Masonry Dissected. It is the first printed indication of the existence of three degrees in the Grand Lodge system and the first proof of the use of the Hiramic legend in the third degree. Where the legend came from, no one knows. Hiram is mentioned in the Bible in 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles. He was also mentioned in the Cook Manuscript of 1410. But the Graham Manuscript, discovered in 1936 and dated 1726, and filled with Masonic ritual, tells us the legend of Noah. A valuable secret died with Noah. His three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, supposed Noah had carried it with him into his grave, and, determined to exhume his body, agreeing beforehand that if they did not find the very thing itself, the first thing they found was to be to them as a secret. They found nothing in his grave except the dead body, when the finger was gripped, it came away, and so with the wrist and the elbow. They then reared up the dead body, supporting it by setting foot to foot, knee to knee, breast to breast, cheek to cheek, and hand to back. 
One said, here is yet marrow in this bone, and the second said, but a dry bone, and the third said, it stinketh. That the story of Hiram developed many years before its absorption into Masonic ritual, no one can deny. It probably derived from a mystery or miracle play of the 1500s. Many interpretations of its meaning have been suggested. It might have been an allusion to the murder of Thomas A. Beckett in 1170, to the martyrdom of Jacques de Molay in 1314, or to the execution of Charles I in 1649, whose followers, the Scottish Jacobites, were numerous in early Masonic membership. Is it an allegory of the death of winter and the resurrection of spring? Could it refer to the ancient practice of ensuring the stability of a structure by burying a human sacrifice in the foundation? Or did Hiram Abiff represent Jesus, whose death and resurrection formed the foundation stone for a Christian belief in immortality? Whatever the interpretation, the legend of the third degree is one of the finest conceptions ever to come from the minds of man. Proof of the gradual evolution of the Masonic ritual is safely lodged in the repository of faithful breasts, now long since dead. However, various exposés, like Pritchard's Masonry Dissected, furnish valuable clues to the gradual development and transition of the ritual. Furthermore, the rivalry of the two grand lodges in England in the 18th century had an impact on our Masonic ritual. In 1751, a group of lodges expressing alarm at the many innovations which they claimed the Grand Lodge was permitting established a rival Grand Lodge which they called the Ancients, satirically referring to the original Grand Lodge as the Moderns. The new Grand Lodge met with much success, due primarily to the remarkable ability and tremendous energy of its early leader and Grand Secretary, Lawrence Dermott. In 1756, he published a book of constitutions for the new Grand Lodge, which he called Ahiman Raison, a title used for the constitutions and ceremonies of the Grand Lodge of Pennsylvania to this day. The division of the craft into two warring factions gave serious Masons much concern. Steps to unite were always in mind, but it was well into another century before they could be realized in 1813. In the interim, Two important events occurred, both affecting the transition in the ritual. In 1772, William Preston published Illustrations of Masonry, probably the most influential Masonic book ever written. For ten years he had visited dozens of lodges, taking notes on the many versions of ritual then in use. Wisely choosing the best and polishing and perfecting even those, he produced an excellent monitor, which received general acclaim. But it had one drawback. Each lecture took two hours to deliver and sorely tried the patience of candidate, member, and instructor alike. The second event was the establishment by the moderns of the Lodge of Promulgation to instruct all Masons in the changes necessary for union. This lodge revised the forms and ceremonies of the moderns to bring them more in line with those of the ancients. It discontinued the innovations that were objected to in 1751 and taught work acceptable to all. Thus, 
when the Union of 1813 was finally consummated, a semi-official ritual soon came into general use. From the beginning of the Grand Lodge era, the ritual was in a constant state of flux. In the 1730s, lodges sprang up in Philadelphia and Boston. As more lodges spread over the colonies, divergence in rituals increased. Some followed the moderns, and some followed the ancients. As the fraternity swept across the Alleghenies, some rituals became a fusion of both. Chaos prevailed until Thomas Smith Webb in 1797 published a Freemason's Monitor and Illustration of Masonry. Webb's Monitor soon became the Bible of American Masonry. Based on Preston's earlier work, it followed mainly the ancient tradition. Webb shortened and simplified Preston and so standardized the symbolism or monitorial portion of the ritual, there has been little change to this day. One other episode needs to be told. In 1860, Rob Morris finished a two-year term as Grand Master of Kentucky. Known as the Poet Laureate of Masonry, he had written the ritual and organized the Order of the Eastern Star ten years before. In 1860, he was probably the best-known Mason in America. With no malice but poor judgment, he undertook to organize the Masonic Conservators, composed of leading Masons in each state, dedicated to the adoption in each Grand Lodge of a standard ritual which Morris himself supplied based on the Preston Webb work. Some 3,000 Masons joined the enterprise, including many Grand Officers, but a vast majority condemned the movement bitterly. Morris had issued a code or cipher book containing the ritual. This violated Masonic law in many jurisdictions. Expulsion was threatened against those members of the movement who would not recant. Some conservators defied their Grand Lodges. After a five-year controversy, the movement ended. While it failed to accomplish its national goals, it left its impress upon the ritual of many Grand Lodges, causing them to re-examine the ritual and to introduce changes in line with the Morris teachings. This short talk merely introduces the subject and provides only a brief outline of the origin of Masonic ritual. The interested brother may inquire and study for himself the advent and adoption of the letter G and its twofold meaning, the derivation of the twin pillars, Boaz and Jachin, the seven liberal arts and sciences, the symbolism, the working tools, and many other interesting phases of our standard work. In our ritual, we have one of the masterpieces of English literature. It stands comparison with the works of Dante, Shakespeare, and the King James Bible. It is one of the noblest conceptions of the human mind, a monument to man's quest for perfection in human character. Long after the words are forgotten, long after the printed page has crumbled into dust, so long as the soul of man aspires to fulfill its destiny in heaven, so long shall the teaching philosophy, the ideals of masonry endure. Amen. So mote it be. This is Brother Michael A. Smith, a voice for Freemasonry. 
And this has been the Short Talk Bulletin Podcast, brought to you by the Masonic Service Association of North America. For the purpose of supporting the worthy goals of disaster relief campaigns, hospital visitation, and the spread of Masonic information and knowledge. If you agree with supporting these worthy goals, please donate. And thank you.